Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we will be talking about the 2014 vampire western film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. For those of you who are probably unfamiliar with this, as it is a foreign film, the story follows the titular character of the girl, played by Levon, while she hunts down unscrupulous men in this fictional town of Bad City. This is intertwined with the story of Arash, a young Iranian man who is struggling to cope with his heroin-addicted father and his own lack of status. And it plays with the idea of the Western in the tropes of outlaw justice, vigilantism, and the stoicism of an unnamed anti-hero which takes precedent over like the flamboyant emotive outbursts indicative of a traditional vigilante avenger batman like film <laughs> it was inspired by the films of sergio leone and those can be found in the way that it imitates dual sequences using the girl and her soon-to-be victim men and the wildly diverse soundtrack which incorporates music from armenian musician Bayru, uh, the Tehran band Kiosk, the band White Lies, and Dariush seamlessly blend rock, folk, jazz, and ambient electronic music to create an atmospheric yet temporally ambiguous score. This was all directed by Anna Lily Amirpour. Actually, I found out in California. Isn't that interesting? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It was filmed in California. That would explain the and English graffiti. Surprise, surprise, it was based on a short film. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> the curse continues. Let's just rename our podcast based on a short film. <laughs> based on a short film. We're going to become like an indie film podcast instead of a horror film podcast. I mean, we are halfway there. This film, though, the thing about it is it definitely has the indie film vibe. I mean, especially in the fact that they're using black and white to sort of, I think, throw back to the the sort of German expressionist vampire aesthetic. Vampires look so much better in black and white, mm -hmm. but it's so well done and in a way that feels cool. And I don't mean cool by like cool. I mean, cool is in like it's the opposite of warm it's sort of isolating mm -hmm. and it makes it really ambiguous when it comes to the actual content of the movie being isolatory but also very indifferent so the audience gets to experience everything without the cloak of familiarity that we normally assume with horror movies mm -hmm. yeah I th the black and white for a modern audience is kind of alienating in a way and that pairs well with some other elements of the film, like the really slow sequence in the plot, and also when you're like watching an individual scene, especially when you have scenes between Arash and the, the girl. It's just all the motions are so slow, very purposeful, but slow. And that is like mm -hmm. another thing where it's just, it feels like a little bit on edge and alien to, at least it did to me very tense yeah and i feel like that was completely intentional and then comparing that with this wide variety of soundtrack influences and pop culture references i feel like the writers and the director didn't want you to feel you knew what the setting was or you knew what was going to happen next it was just constantly trying to alienate the viewer i mean obviously the name bad city is sort of bland and, and generic it, it's sort of, you know, it is akin to Sin City. When you think about the idea behind Bad City is it's supposed to sort of portray these neglected characters. And Arash specifically is the poster boy for that idea of neglect. He's sort of rebuked by his own father because his father's only purpose in life is to find his next deal of heroin and he wants to rise in status and i think that the one of the pivotal scenes for arash specifically is when he is at the costume party he's dressed as dracula and the rich girl that he works for hears that he has drugs and i think is it's meant to represent he is trying to involve himself with that crowd of people through the provision of drug sale 
He's trying to seem cool to them and and sort of (laughs) invade their circle. And he's still rejected. And that's, I think, why after he takes ecstasy, he sort of has like a mental meltdown at the party where he's watching her and she's going to start dancing with this other guy and she's not going to dance with him. And it's supposed to be sort of a class stratification. So you might say he is dealing gateway drugs because the drugs are his gateway into the uh, higher class. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got the wrong set of keys. Right. Yeah. Well, he's got ecstasy, so... He's got ecstasy. He also has heroin. Did he try the heroin? The way that he reacted when she was like, here, you take ecstasy now, that it made me feel like he had never done drugs before. Oh, for sure. He was only dealing the drugs because he saw that Saeed, I don't know if they're supposed to be friends or, or whatever, but the guy that his dad owes money to. Oh, they're definitely not friends. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Saeed is a businessman. Right. So <laughs> I think he saw like the lifestyle that Saeed was living and he's like, well, that's, you know, that's what I want. I want the girls and I want the money and I want, you know, that like swanky apartment. So he is like, well, he deals drugs. So I'm, I'm going to start doing that. You really get to see all of the levels of, I suppose, addiction and the idea of how it affects a community mm-hmm. potentially based on the very few but important character relationships in this movie because you see his relationship with Saeed, which is entirely parasitic. Arash has to, in fact, keep providing for his father, who's addicted to these drugs, and and he's ultimately the one that pays for it. And so that's why I think he's, one, hesitant to do drugs because when you see the crippling effects that they can have, his father is, uh, you know, he's abusive, he is abrasive, and it's because of his addiction. And then you get to see Saeed, who is a dealer, but he is also a user, and it really portrays him as this sort of irredeemable character. Yeah, he's not a good guy. Yeah, he's not a good guy. And it's it's interesting, I was watching this uh, and thinking after Saeed's death... Arash starts to sell drugs in in the same street corners that Sahid would have. And there's almost this idea that Arash sees the success and sort of wants to gain that success. It's it's like he's trying to find his own place, which is either going to be in the upper class with the girl who rejects him, or it's going to be selling drugs on the sidewalk and, and just being sort of the, the local dealer. And obviously he's not happy with that particular decision. And I think that that's why he has the reaction he does to running into uh, the girl on that almost like suburban looking street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that scene was really different than the rest of the movie, at least with setting. A lot of it is very urban kind of feel. And a lot of it is kind of like this run down kind of feel but in that moment it does it's like got this like cleaner suburban kind of look mm-hmm. to it and i don't know what the reasoning for that would have been but it seems like everything in this movie kind of has a, a reason and a meaning to it well i think that part of it is because arash he runs into the girl and and he says i don't know this place where are we and she says bad city and i think that that was the first time that they say it in the movie mm-hmm. because both of you and i started having the conversation about it like oh was that a a weird translation and he uh initially refutes that that's where they are and i think that to him it's it it really is you know refuting it because there is a clear class stratification Mm. there's this upper class uh suburb area that's really nice it's really clean it's really idyllic and then everything else is juxtaposed with i guess the slums the graffiti buildings the the dingy alleys, the dirty chain link fences, juxtaposing those specifically with the uh, industrial imagery of the oil rigs and the uh, the smokestacks that are coming out. It, it's really separating them and Arash thinks he has found his place and then obviously is rejected and so he's he's making his way back to Bad City and she becomes his guide. Yeah, because then there's that last scene where they're actually like in Bad City together is in that train yard which is really Mm -hmm. back to that more industrial feel yeah and he brings the frisbees made out of meat (laughs) (laughs) translation burgers i think that that was a really interesting scene too uh the whole presence of food as like a, a metaphor in that particular scene and i know it's partially to 
to be like, oh, she's a vampire and she can't eat. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. why he's bringing it. But I would like to give this film more credit and think that there is obviously more to it. It's sort of the idea of the retro 1950s sort of reference that they're going for. It's the the hamburgers in a paper sack that that they bring on their first date. If you think about Grease Lightning, when you ask a girl out, you say, hey, you want to go get a like a burger and a shake? And it's supposed to be that you know, timeless element to it mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and that's so we're kind of getting into the the meat of this film's kind of like metaphorical workings. No pun intended. You said the meat of this film's oh. metaphorical work. <laughs> I didn't even. I truly no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> but that's uh, seemingly basically toxic masculinity. So the whole film kind of pivots on this idea of the girl being the vampire. She is mm-hmm. preying on men. Mm-hmm. She's a feminist icon. So she's preying on men. She's she's the one walking home alone at night. And she's actually like stalking her victims at night. And of course, the expectation when you hear the film's title is that, oh, the, the girl is going to be the victim. That's what you think immediately when you hear a girl walks home alone at night. Mm-hmm. And it's dangerous. It's, yeah, and it's this reversal because she's a vampire. She is preying on human victims who are men. Mm-hmm. So with this reversal, it kind of gives you this idea of like, well, if the roles were reversed, then the male would be the villain. He's stalking his prey at night. So you get that that kind of idea going throughout the movie. And then there are a bunch of other things that buffer that metaphor as well. For example, you've already mentioned the oil well imagery. And right. if you think about like what oil wells do and oil drills, they're drilling into the earth, they're penetrating the earth. That's kind of like a m- metaphor. Mm. For <laughs> You're right, but you <laughs> well where, where did you think i was going with that <laughs> you know i knew where you were going with oh it. Just, you just wanted to okay <laughs> express my my grossness that's gross there are a lot of sexual metaphors in this film mm-hmm. yeah and they're mostly related to reclamation well because sahid's whole character is is like the power dynamic that's what it hinges on right and, and i mean that's that's sort of what the you know, I think the title also sort of implies, but... And then, of course, every relationship are very meaningful as well. For example, between Sahid and the girl, he sees her on the street and they're walking in opposite directions. And then he sees her, they just kind of like look at each other and pass each other by. And then you can tell he gets this feeling of like someone's watching him and that it's her standing behind him. So then he's like immediately put into the vulnerable position. But then, of course, he kind of like tries to flip it, and you know, he's like, "Oh, I'll come back to my place." And he, I guess he felt like, yeah, and his he's not reading the he's not reading the danger. No, not at all. <laughs> he's just like, "Oh, this girl is looking at me, and I obviously know what that means." Even from that point in the movie, he's already been made out to be not not a good person. His whole aesthetic revolves around being a representation of that toxic masculinity and i think about sort of the the use of the jungle like furniture that's in his house which is typically used to represent like primalcy or like obviously the the masculine drive the testosterone drive behind everything he's got the stag heads uh mounted on the walls oh yeah right and he does all of these proto-masculine things or masculine <laughs> presenting things. Like mm-hmm. he comes in, he doesn't even really talk to her, but he goes and he turns on like some bump and techno music. He does a line of cocaine and then he starts lifting weights. And it's just like, okay, we we get it, Scarface. Like <laughs> we know what you're trying to do. And then he does two more lines of cocaine. Yeah, it's like you you can certainly chill, sir. And I mean, obviously the, the finger sucking is very phallic representing and the fact that she bites it off is one important as a symbol of what's happening but two the fact that she then after biting it off before attacking and killing him shoves it into his own mouth it's flipping the penetrative power dynamic that you would typically be thinking of if you think back to the greeks and the romans that was the least masculine thing you could do in the greek sort of tradition there there actually still was a masculine hierarchy and so men who would perform that on other men were considered less masculine than actually women 
largely. Okay, so it's a largely submissive behavior. Yeah, it was the most submissive behavior that that you could um, entertain. And so the the idea behind it is that it really does come down to a whittling away of one's masculinity through the power complex. Yeah, I mean, that's it's very clear there because he's already down a finger and she's standing over him at that point and she's like kind of throwing mm-hmm. him around a little bit. It's very clear in that moment that like she is the one in control. Right, and I think that it flips the it flips the vampire metaphor really beautifully too because you think about vampires in traditional media, they are always still sort of these sensual creatures, but it's it's often through, you know, some sort of manipulation and I think about Dracula being able to hypnotize people in the OG versions of the, you know, the Dracula mythos. And they're always seen as being these creatures that take on that sort of power dynamic and that sexiness. And this is really the opposite. And in a couple of ways, I think about like a lot of female vampire characters, they always like to enhance their femininity. And in this case, the girl is covered every time that she engages in a vampiric activity. She's got the full cloak on. She is as covered as she can be. And it's only when she is dealing with Arash and has the cloak taken off that you see sort of the vulnerability and the uh, the more human side to her. Mm-hmm. I also think that they just gave her the cloak because it looks awesome when <laughs> she like does the thing where she flips it out before pouncing on people. Yeah, that was really cool. It just looks so cool. <laughs> the classic vampire move mm-hmm. when you see like the cape goes out jumping forward onto their prey. And because this is by no means a traditional type of vampire movie. Mm-mm. And I feel like they had to have some of those classic vampire tropes. That being one of them, of course, the fangs kind of coming out when they're ready to feed is another one. And they show like that close up. I mean, I'm sure if you're listening, you can you can imagine exactly what I'm describing. And also, I think how when she asks uh, Arash to pierce her ears, the fangs click out when she's in pain Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, this is a reminder that even in this very human moment, that is not what she is. That actually, it's funny that you bring the earrings up because that's another moment is when he goes, well, it's a shame your ears aren't pierced because you can't wear them. And she goes, well, you can pierce them right now. And so she hands him a clothespin and he heats it up and sterilizes it and pierces her ears so that she can wear these earrings. He does this and the things come out. And that's a whole other kind of sexual metaphor is that he's piercing her ear. If you can read into that, he's penetrating her I ear. actually think... That it's a, a metaphor for consent because he says, oh, it's a shame that your your ears aren't pierced and he's not going to force it. But mm-hmm. instead she consents to having her ears pierced. The fact that her ears are not pierced, I feel like that's like almost like a symbol of purity. Mm-hmm. And then him actually doing the act of piercing her ears is, I, I think consent can go along with it. But she has chosen him to be the one to take that purity that she yeah. has had her whole life. I agree. I totally think that that's what's going on. Then she puts the earring in right away after he pierces it. Mm-hmm. And she and there's like this really awkward moment where she's like rushing to get it in. There's the whole idea that vampires don't bleed themselves because they don't have blood. Mm-hmm. And they heal incredibly fast. Right. So I think that that's kind of a nod to that. It's like she didn't want to see that. She didn't bleed even though she just basically got stabbed or mm-hmm. that it closed up immediately. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Even though they drive away into the sunset in his like 19 whatever car he never knows what she is Mm -hmm. even at the end when he's figured out that she was the one who killed his father because of the cat which like she could have just found the cat dude you literally (laughs) stole the cat from somebody else nobody knows how this works it felt very much unanswered because he never actually learns that she is a vampire unlike the uh addy and she's obviously sees the girl commit an act of vampiracy on hussein and then rejects her and you know says you need to leave and i think that that's a a really important signifier as well of of sort of the way that the their relationship breaks down is that when 
she is with Arash, she is human. Because only when she is with Arash do we see her take off the veil of, you know, the vampiric qualities that she has and literally taking off the veil so that she can put on her Jean-Paul Gaultier, like, striped sweater. That in itself is the struggle that you see in vampiric characters. It's kind of this balance between their human selves and their more monstrous vampiric selves. And they have to feed and they have to like keep up this vampiric activity in order to survive. And there is that almost like primal side to them that is the need to feed. But then there's also those human things where you you see them kind of deal with emotions. Yeah, there's a great case to be made with with how they interact with their own humanity and i think that that's part of the reason like why there's such a stark juxtaposition between soundtracks as well because you look at the uh, largely electronic and sort of ambient score that is taking place a more traditional film music style so i'm thinking about particularly when she and uh, Hussein are, are walking in parallel. It's sort of that Ennio Morricone, big, brassy, uh, almost Western-inspired duel score that's going on, and it's supposed to be setting it up like a duel with you know mm-hmm. the brassy trumpets. Juxtaposing that, too, with the way that there's that purring that gets turned into a whole electronic score when we learn that the cat is her familiar that she can see through. It's very traditional in its film score style, even though it is, I think, still really unique and beautifully blended. But it is the opposite of every time that we see her in her home when she doesn't have the shawl on, when she looks like a regular person and she's just reading or lounging or listening to music, it goes to the uh, rock music and it'll switch to like rock or jazz or sort of that Iranian folk style. And so I think that that too is supposed to represent the juxtaposition between the human, which is playful and fun and quirky and a little bit weird with the vampire, which is very stark, traditional, cut and dry. That kind of goes along with like the whole idea that vampires are these old entities in whatever media you always see them in this oh you know they're hundreds maybe even thousands of years old and we don't know how old this girl is we don't even know her name get to find out (laughs) we don't even know her name it's kind of cool she is the girl with no name which i think that that's sort of indicative of the sergio leone movies too because the character in the movie is supposed to be the man with no name so there is sort of that clear reference as well We don't ever get to learn who she is, what she is. I think it's also a reference to the whole masculinity and like sexual abuse kind of themes as well, because given the role reversal, if she is a girl, then in reality, it's a boy or a man. So it's kind of like a nod to it could be any man. And it's the multiplying the fear of modern women. Or it could be any girl. Any girl that is walking home is, is sort of subject to this treatment. Because ultimately, she's not treated the best by Saheed. Right. She's not treated safely. She is obviously reclaiming her power in the space on those streets with uh, all those Dutch angles. A Dutch angle, for those of you listening, is when the camera perspective is is slightly askew or dramatically askew of the horizon line. There's a certain effect that goes along with that, and that is of old television like think tv land like 50s and 60s cathode ray yeah televisions i mean it's not black and white but think like the brady bunch and i know that was later Mm -hmm. but like think of like the background images you see like the houses in the distance they look like they're fake but you know that they're not it has that like weird quality to it like familiar but also surreal yeah and it it looks like that's that's not a real thing that's over there but you know it is Mm -hmm. because it has to be it looks vintage the way that they shot this because of those the dutch angles but also you know the black and white some other stuff that's interesting about the cinematography of this film is well one the script and we'll we'll get to that in a second but the pacing of it and the, the way that the scenes play out it almost feels like you're getting the story through montage Mm. I think that the script yeah. also has to do with that because the script is very minimalist. Mm-hmm. Almost nothing is said that doesn't need to be said 
for you to understand what's going on. That also plays into the montage delivery. You don't stay anywhere for too long, at least mentally. There are a lot of juxtapositions between really short, just atmospheric clips and then really long drawn out shots where you get Mm -hmm. to just sort of watch the characters move and interact Mm -hmm. and i think that that's really marvelously done and there is something almost surreal to it especially when they're on the streets there is a surprising number of descending streets and it's sort of interesting because i can't think of a single time in the film where we saw any character ascend We only see Hmm. them fall. Interesting. And so, you know, I think that that sort of represents the idea of continually getting dragged down. And Bad City is this sort of inescapable place. And Arash, even when he, you know, he tries to ascend, and that's the metaphorical ascension of his class, but he ends up uh, in that ascension falling back and she takes him to her house. And so we get to sort of watch him be pulled down into her world, which is sort of at the lowest level. And it's not until they literally leave Bad City that they get to escape that sort of planing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably part of a power dynamic as well. And to go along with the the theme of power and ranking of it, I feel like is a good reason to put a pimp and a sex worker <laughs> in the film. There's a clear hierarchy in that relationship as well. And there's a really important sort of distinction to be made about how the men are viewing the women in the film. Because that same worker, we see how she interacts with another woman, which is not the best interaction. But there is an inherent like sort of bond of safety between them. Even when the girl kills Hussein, Addie is like, all right, well, let's drag him out to the corner. Like, let's get him out of here. And she's like, I can't obviously be around you anymore, but she's not going to rat her out. She's not going to say what she did. And likewise, the girl watches her uh, key Arash's car, which, because she thinks that it's Sahid's, but after keying the car, they don't really say anything. They end up actually both going back to uh, Adi's apartment. And Adi has a lot of sort of traditionally feminine elements to her the way that she puts on makeup and the way that she she looks whereas i think that the girl for the most part is a a little ambiguously gendered but then addy also in the way that she gets treated as a substitute for uh hussein's wife who had died Uh, when they have the whole scene where he forces her to do heroin and then he just wants to like lay by her side and be like oh you're my wife now I'm reliving the days when I had a wife and really any woman will do. And that's sort of the whole aesthetic view of women from the terrible men in this movie. Any woman is a stand-in for any woman. And I think that that's why it's also so important that the girl intimidates the boy in the alley when she steals his skateboard and she brings out the fangs and then they throw in the really slow voice modulation and she terrifies him into being afraid of women. And that's, I think, supposed to be representative of the fact that fear and respect are often misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to impart that onto this young boy. Yeah, I kind of read that almost like the reversal of an abusive relationship. Or I guess, I mean, still, still an abusive relationship. Because he saw the girl dragging Hussein's body out of Eddie's house. So like he knows that she had something to do with it. And then when, when Arash is asking the boy, do you know who did this? Do you know anything? And he's going, no, no. And Arash mm-hmm. can tell he knows and he's trying to get out of him. But the boy is too afraid of the girl to actually tell and that's kind of like the sign of an abusive relationship is when you know someone has caused you trauma but you're too afraid of them to actually do anything about it or even tell anyone about it right and i really wasn't expecting that messaging to happen in this film and i i remember when we were watching it i even said to you oh it's it's gonna be like her her brother or something and we're gonna get tricked and then it is absolutely not that (laughs) <laughs> it is it is one of the the more mortifying parts of the movie because you're like is she really about to kill this kid <laughs> and then she just steals a skateboard and we get the cool like shot of her skateboarding down the middle of the road with the cape out not something you get to see in classic vampire movies not at all speaking of classic vampire movies zach i think it's time for our first game 
I have uh, prepared for you. Uh, this one is, is really short. It's really easy. Um, hopefully, it's not going to be easy. I don't know why I said that. There's oh, only three questions, but this game is called Fake Fangs, as in, you know, fake fans, uh, fake in fans. which I'm going to give you three names, as well as the movie that the name is from, and I want you to identify which character is not the vampire. Sound good? Sure. And uh, everyone uh, who's listening, you may feel free to play along. Let us know in our email if you got them all right, or leave a comment on the YouTube video. So, number one, Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night, Michael Emerson from The Lost Boys, or Henry Sturgis from Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So which one of those is not a vampire? Okay. Can you say just the names one more time? Yep. Jerry Dandridge, Michael Emerson, Henry Sturgis. I'm pretty sure Henry Sturgis is a vampire. I'm going to go with the second one, whatever, Emerson. Michael Emerson, that is correct. So in the movie The Lost Boys, Michael Emerson is bitten and almost becomes a vampire, but because he does not ever partake in the killing and drinking uh, of human blood, he does not become a vampire, and once the lead vampire is killed, he is returned to normal as a human. Congratulations, you have got the first one correct. Wow, that was a complete guess. These only increase in difficulty, so here's the second one. It's much harder. Number one, Kurt Barlow from Salem's Lot. Eben Olsen from 30 Days of Night. Sean Crenshaw from The Monster Squad. Sean Crenshaw. That is correct. Sean Crenshaw is not a vampire. In fact, Dracula is the vampire in The Monster Squad. And he uses the name Alucard. Yeah, see, that one I kind of knew because I knew Monster Squad was like pretty classic in its handling of monsters. Yeah, they've got Wolfman and, and Frankie and the fish dude, which is cool. Yeah. Fish dude. Yeah. <laughs> like the Black Lagoon. <laughs> the, the creature from the Black Lagoon guy, yeah. Are you ready for this one, Zach? All right, yeah. Let's go. These are vampires from the hit anime series Monogatari. The name of the first one. Tropical-esque home away of dog strings. Shit. <laughs> Vampire 2. Deathtopia Virtuoso Suicide Master. Okay, not Vampire that one. Vampire <laughs> 3. shot Pisces of the Infinite Blade. Oh, it's gotta be the first one. Even remember what it was, but it did not sound like a vampire name. Tropical-esque home away of dog strings? That one. <laughs> Zach, I'm afraid that is a vampire in the uh. Monogatari series. It is, in fact, the third Kiss Shot Pisces of the Infinite Blade. Their real name in the show is Kiss Shot Acerola Orion Heart Under the Blade. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Other important vampires of this series uh, include Dramaturgy, High Waist, Low Rise. So for a brief period, they were influenced by um, types of jeans. And Koyoma Aragari. Why do all these characters have, like, 20 names? They're, like... Exactly. Spanish kings. Uh, so, good try. I mean, two you out did. of three, when I really... I was expecting it zero, so... So, yeah, this is a particularly good vampire movie, and I think that it would be good to talk about the essence of the vampirism. First of all, obviously, we've we've mentioned, you know, it's the girl. She is the eponymous vampire in uh, a girl walks home alone at night how does she hold up do you think in the canon of vampires like i said earlier they kind of throw some of those classic vampire moves at you but then they don't attempt to insert any of like the weaknesses that we associate with vampires being you know garlic crosses the sun <laughs> you know the big ones a stake to the heart well that'd kill anyone right i mean i guess that's true you can't necessarily say that that's a vampire specific um whereas some would say that the sun could also kill anyone that's true given enough time if you leave them outside enough they could develop some sort of melanoma or, or like a really bad sunburn throw them on some asphalt and they'll just fry and they'll just <laughs> yeah they'll just cook where are we going with this oh (laughs) she doesn't they don't they don't attempt to uh make 
make her seem like she has any of those classic weaknesses. Yeah, she literally has nothing to fear in this movie. The vampirism is just like a vehicle to make her the the predator of the movie mm-hmm. and like that, makes her strong right in the hierarchy of the the characters in the film puts her at the top uh, automatically because no one yeah. else seems to have this kind of supernatural uh, ability that makes them this kind of stealthy murderer you know what's interesting oh man you just saying that it just made me realize they bookended the food chain they put women at the top and bottom of the food chain Ah. Because it goes, it goes, the girl, Sahid, Arash, Hussein, Adi. So they show her as both the top and the bottom. That works really well with the whole mirroring idea of the movie too. But to answer your original question, I feel like it's like a 20% match to that classic Dracula image that we know. I like that they don't give her very many lines. And even when Arash is talking to her, she doesn't really respond all that much. Mm -hmm. It's almost a learning thing and like a blank expression. Like she was assimilating. There's this sensation that when she's watching these, these men, she's like learning about them as she's doing it, even though we sort of are treated to this idea that she already knows everything. And I think about how she interacts with Sahid. She like watches him do drugs and, and lift weights and she like learns the behavior. And then it's not until he starts interacting with her in that masculine power dynamic that she even makes the move. That's too one of the things I think about the idea of consent within this film is Mm -hmm. Sahid makes a move on her and then she retaliates, and Hussein uh, crosses the street first, and mm. and he sort and uh, or or whatever that guy is, he like not Hussein crosses the street, and then he gets attacked, and then uh, Hussein is the aggressor towards Ati. It was Hussein early in the movie, but she didn't kill him then. She killed him later. She didn't one. kill him then. Why didn't yeah. she kill him then? I mean, I think it's suspense. Some horror elements. They had to put some mm-hmm. some kind of the only one that isn't really explainable is the The homeless homeless man. man. I think he was merely a device to show she needs to feed. And it's almost sad in like the way that she has to go about it because you know, the other, the other, she sort of like devilishly pounces on, uh, but she approaches him a lot slower. It almost feels like it's a tense struggle for her because her preferred target is the men with no scruples. Yeah, the homeless man is like super afraid of her to start. He's like, "What, what do you want from me? Just can you like not be up in my business?" And, what are you doing? Right, yeah. and she. I feel like that made her like, hesitate a little bit in the way that some predatory men out there might second guess their actions when a girl reacts that way. Yeah, might. I like the idea that they really do put her at the top of the metaphorical and literal food chain. And I think it's interesting that this is really honestly the first vampire movie I can think of in a long time that doesn't have some sort of factor that can kill the vampire. Mm -hmm. That is never explored. And I mean, you think about Dracula and he dies always like a a way that somebody is trying to kill the vampire. Somebody knows that there is a vampire and that... There's always like a Van Helsing character to take care of it. There's always a monster hunter. And this is the first time that there's very clearly not a monster hunter. There's nobody that's going to uh, take care of this issue. And as an audience member, you almost don't want people to take care of her because she's a vigilante. But Matt, she's the monster hunter. She's the monster hunter. God damn it. I didn't get it until I repeated it. And then I realized what, yeah, you are correct. Well, that's, I think that's the intention is that you're expecting someone to come after her the whole time. And when she's really the one that's serving the justice. That's the sort of weird thing. It's the, the conflict in this movie isn't necessarily what we would expect of a traditional horror movie. Instead, it is those moments of suspense and there's a a sort of romance undertone to it, Mm -hmm. which I know is not unheard of in vampire movies, but I I feel like very rarely the romantic undertones do not also include the vampire except for Twilight, which I don't count as a real piece of fiction. Well, it's, it's, (laughs) it may be a vampire movie, but it's not 
a horror movie. <laughs> it's so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never seen it, so maybe and also maybe there is. less. Anyways, so while we're on that subject, I, I feel like a lot of the suspense and horror, I guess, comes from her interactions with Arash. It's like, when's he going to mess up and give her a reason to feed on him? Yeah, when's he going to make a move? And and he doesn't, of course. The question that I had at the end of the movie is, why, why is Arash different? And I think that you've answered that question with this idea of consent. And there's there's like this weird, when they first meet each other, going back to that scene. He's staring at the lamp high out of his mind. They're talking. He's like trying to figure out how to get home and explains his costume. He's like, oh, look, I'm Dracula. And he's joking about it. But the way that she looks at him after that, it's almost as if she believes that he's Dracula. She starts looking at him with this awe and almost reverence in her eyes. I mean, a case could be made that Arash is a sort of vampire in a way. In what way? I don't, I was hoping you'd explain that. (laughs) I I don't see that. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. Every other character in this movie is a vampire except kind of Arash because I would say that Sahid is, he's a vicious person. He is a bloodsucker and he's draining Arash and he's draining Ati and that's supposed to be part of it. And then Hussein is also, is draining Arash and draining Ati. They're sort of consuming them because everything that they are doing is destroying who Arash and Ati are as people, as individuals, as human. And so it's sort of sapping away at their humanity. And we get to watch these two characters become other rather than human. Mm-hmm. I think that there is sort of a idea that Arash wants to become that. He's sort of a leech, especially in regard to how he deals with his employer and uh, his employer's daughter, who, who he sees at the party. Like he's trying to work his way up the food chain, literally. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he's not going to be able to do that. So I wonder if there's sort of a mutual experience between the two. What's well, also interesting, it's funny that you mentioned both Hasin and Sahid being vampiric in their own ways. They are almost always wearing dark colors. We don't know. Mm-hmm. All black. Well, we don't know Whether... if it might be a different color because it's in black and white. I would bet that it's black because it's all like the, it's like biker leather. Right. And then also Hasin has that like kind of black sweater that he's wearing a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And Arash is, at least originally, wearing a very white shirt. And he's wearing mm-hmm. white and lighter colors throughout the film. Looking like a Iranian John Travolta. Yeah, and that may have been, not necessarily to be like, black is tainted and white is pure. Not, not necessarily that idea, but with the lens of black and white palette choice in this film, just to contrast him to the other men in the film. And there's always that old saying about things not being black and white. And I think that you're totally correct. And that makes the girl's clothing even more impactful considering she's wearing a black and white striped shirt or sweater that she has on for the whole movie. Because then it's supposed to be like, oh, she's she is somewhere in between. She is the anti-hero. You know, on one side, she is performing a, a service to the community, which is eliminating bad people. But at the same time, she is still a slave to her vampiric urges. And it's still sort of monstrous and something to be afraid of. And so we get a nice, like, a taut dichotomy between those two things. Yeah. In other news, Mm -hmm. since we brought up Sahid, his tattoo. Says sex on his neck. Sex. Like, yeah, like right on his, like by his clavicles. And then he has Pac-Man on the back of his neck. Yeah, I I don't know what that, I mean, he's got tattoos all over. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain meaning to that? To the Pac-Man one? Absolutely. Like what? He is gluttonous and all-consuming. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. That is the one that I came up with. It probably also is a means of trying to, like, force you as the audience to not be able to carbon date this movie. Also, that he eats ghosts. That is true. We do see him eat a a whole line of ghosts. (laughs) That's that's what cocaine (laughs) is. That's what makes it so powerful, is the souls (laughs) of the dead. You know, that's how they used to... If you had ghosts in your blood, you you took a line of coke and you were fine. That's what they used to do in in the 1890s. Like bleeding with leeches? Yeah, exactly. Then the leeches are high. You got ghosts in your blood, kid. Bring out the cocaine. (laughs) Bring out the cocaine and leeches. And the leeches. Exactly. (laughs) 
where was I going with this? Oh, he has the the sex tattoo. And then you see later on there is some graffiti like in the background. It says sex. Mm-hmm. It's almost like subliminal messaging. Oh, yeah. Se- sex is always present. You know, there's that whole idea that men can't go, what is it, like eight seconds or something that's terribly yeah, exaggerated. Yeah, yeah, like you thinking. can't go. I was thinking it might be a matter of emphasizing the difference between the sexes, literally taking on the imagery of, of male versus female. Well, you mentioned before we got a little derailed, the difficulty with placing this film in history. Mm-hmm. Is there are so many like pop culture references. And in the very beginning, you kind of get this feel as like, okay, like 50s. He's got like this 50s kind of car. He's dressed like a greaser, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. And the music is kind of like on the older side. Yeah, the music is like Parisian folk accordion music with a double bass player playing the bass line which was super cool yeah oh it was awesome it totally came out of left field and it was completely opposite of what you see on the screen and then lionel richie's hello and then there is that white lies song death death and that's from 2009 there's all these different things i can't think of there's something else that Well, the Pac-Man is 90s. But yeah, one of the things that makes it impossible to date this movie, and actually, do you know what one of the key ways that people date film is? It's the phones. You can almost always tell what year a movie was made based on what the phones look like. Even sci-fi movies, you can tell when the movie was made based on how they treated the technology that allowed them to have phones. There are no phones in this movie. (laughs) Right. There's no cell phones. There's You don't see any phones at all. And another thing, Mm -hmm. sorry, I just remembered, the Ronald Reagan mask at the party. The Ronald Reagan mask! And you're like, what year is it? Like, it had to have been after, at least after or during the 80s for that to be a thing. Yeah, where are you going to find a Ronald Reagan mask these days? Well, even even Party before, City? like, the, there's no way Ro- there are Ronald Reagan masks before 80s. Regardless, I mean, there's a song from 2009 in the movie that they put a record on. It implies that this song is being played on the record. Yeah. And so I think that's the timelessness of toxic masculinity and the the fear that a lot of women have walking home it's alone an at night concept right yeah it is timeless and transcendent doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what time you live in mm-hmm. doesn't matter where you live one of the most striking shots is whenever it shows that like little ravine and the ravine is full of bodies on the outskirts of the oil rigs. Yeah. That never gets explained and it's never talked about and it's never given meaning in the film. It's not ever really even used as like a plot point in the film, except for one time when we see a person throwing a body into it. So what do you think it represents? The nameless void that is women that, get sexually abused and taken advantage of. Is that really what you think? That's my off-the-cuff guess. I think that that's a totally fair assessment. There is something weirdly, like, nameless and numerous about it, and I think that that is one of the marks of this movie that's really interesting, is that it is so surreal at times, and then other times it is very realistic. But whenever it shows that shot, it's always just like, whoa, what is happening here? I don't think that it has anything to do with like who the girl's victims are. I think it's sort of a product of Bad City. I think that it's another part of the class distinction. And to go even further, think about how that sort of assault works. There is a disproportionate number of people affected if it is from a lower social class. So I think that uh, part of it is them being lost to the system. So I do agree with your with your take that it has something to do with sort of the namelessness of, of these victims and sort of ideology of victimhood in general, which is when you become a victim, you lose your identity. You, you are a Jane Doe or a John Doe. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that just occurred to me when you were saying that, because it's by the oil, the, the field where they're drilling for oil. Dead bodies under the pressure of the earth that decompose they become oil then they're Uh drilling for the oil so i wonder if that has anything to do with people get used up and recycled 
Yeah. Mm. So I think that goes along with what you're saying really well. It becomes this this cycle of using and destroying people. I think it's really just supposed to be like this cyclical idea. The cyclic destruction of toxic masculinity. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like I said earlier, there are a lot of things in this movie that can mean a lot of things. And I think that you can draw your own conclusions by watching them. But these are just our thoughts. Speaking of our thoughts, most of the events of the movie take place at night. And in fact, mm -hmm. aside from when Hussein's body is discovered, I'm not sure there are any other scenes where there's any of the characters are out in daylight. And when he's stealing the cat at the beginning. Right, there's that. But I feel like that's, there's got to be a reference to vampirism. I mean, also he's stealing a cat. I think that that's pretty obvious about a, taking uh, from women. Think about euphemisms. Think Tom Jones. Anyways, we have another game. So this one is just called Bosom Bloodsucking Buddies. Sorry, wait. Is that like the Better Business Bureau? <laughs> yeah. That... <laughs> it's the BBB. I'm going to name for you uh, two vampires, and I want you to tell me what they are from, and this can be film or television. All right. Number one. Lestat and Louis. <laughs> They're from the same thing. They're from the same thing. I will tell you, one of them is played by Tom Cruise and one of them is played by Brad Pitt. Oh, interview with a vampire. Correct. That okay. is correct. That that was actually what I was thinking originally. A grand old vampire movie. All right, this one will be a little trickier, but uh, this one is a television series, I will tell you. Bill Compton and Eric Northman. I'll give you a, a little bit about it. It is uh, an HBO original television series. <laughs> that doesn't help me. <laughs> All right. That one is True Blood. I'll be honest, and I feel pretty stupid right now. I didn't know True Blood was about vampires. Well, that would... I thought it was like a dynasty kind of thing, you know? Bloodlines. Yeah, uh, True Blood is it, it has vampires in it, but it also has werewolves, werepanthers, what? fairies. All right, are you ready for your next one? Yeah. This one, I think that you're gonna get it. I think you'll okay. know this. This is a television series. The two vampires are Lily and Grandpa. The monsters. <laughs> it is the monsters. Does Grandpa you really not have a name? He His doesn't. Grandpa does he? Monster. All right, this one is uh, another movie. It is Barnabas Collins and Victoria Winters. That's a hard game for someone who hasn't seen many vampire movies. Um, Helena Bonham Carter is also in this movie, and it was directed by Tim Burton. I feel like the more information you give me, the more confused I get. <laughs> nope, I don't know. It's Dark Shadows. I've never even heard of that one. Oh, yeah. it's uh, So it, it's like a... It's a period piece, so it's set in, like, the 70s. This one will be a little bit easier. Edward and Bella. Well, that's, um... I almost said True Blood. Uh, the other one that's not good. Um, Twilight. I'm afraid it's not actually Twilight, Zach. Uh, it's Breaking Dawn. Bella doesn't become a vampire until the fourth movie. Is that the same... <laughs> I thought it was... Wait, is... so what's Breaking Dawn? Is it's that, like, a sequel? It's the same series. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the fourth movie. Twilight's the first movie, and she's not a vampire in that movie. Well, that's fine. I at least got close. <laughs> I'm counting that as a small victory. Congratulations. I have about 15 more. We're going to stop really? them, though. There are a lot of movies with two vampires. Well, yeah, that's kind of vampire <laughs> thing is that they kind of, they turn people, and that, that's what gives you hope about them is that they might have yeah. some humanity and attachment, too. That's it for my games. That's what I had, some, some trivia-related... Well done. Game. Thank you everyone for joining us for this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And we'll see you the same time next week.